Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is uh, Penn's beat writer from the Tribune Review, Bill West. Bill, what's going on, man? Oh, I'm doing all right. Uh, enjoying a somewhat rainy afternoon here in Pittsburgh. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good, man. I'm uh, I'm excited to to get into this series with you. I haven't really done a podcast on it yet, and and we've got two games in the books now, so there's a a few things to unpack and sink our teeth into. Indeed, yeah, yeah, a lot to uh, to process so far. I think, um, I, I think okay, let, let's start here because everything, not just in this series, but everything in the world, I feel like revolves around Phil Kessel because he's just the best. And, uh, and obviously, um, you know, he had a little bit of a rough start, much like the rest of the Penguins team did the, to the season and, and was catching a lot of flack for it and, and has unjustly received a lot of, uh, criticism in the past for, for playing on, on poor, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs teams. But it's been remarkable to watch this postseason run he's on now where he has 10 goals so far. And I think he's, he's third in the, in the league in playoff scoring and and I don't know just like I want you to get tell the listeners about just the uh the Phil Kessel experience both watching him live every night but also just covering him and talking to him on a, on a routine basis well the the funny thing about Phil is talking to him remains somewhat difficult um I think part of the reason that the the Toronto media ended up dealing with him the way they did or treating him the way they did is because they wanted him to um, open up and and you know really become someone he's not. He he's kind of this quirky, shy guy who just really isn't interested in in being the center of a story. Even though again with his skill set, it's very easy to to you know write about him and make him the center of attention. Mm-hmm. But that's just not the way he's wired. So uh, it, you know he kind of. He he has to deal with the media now because, as you acknowledge, he's just been this stud in the, the playoffs. Um, so, so he's talking more than ever, but I still just don't know if he's enjoying it or if he's kind of scratching his head. Like I don't know what to say. They brought him up to the the podium last night with Connor Sheary, and he just he kind of gives you very basic answers as far as you know. San Jose is a good team. We have to play tough. We did some good things, and, and that's kind of the extent of his insight. So I, I think he is legitimately. Um, thrilled by this you know, opportunity and in the position he's in with the Penguins. Uh, he's definitely enjoying the way 
um, you know, really life is going for him right now. The, the Pittsburgh media has not been nearly as you know, critical, even when things weren't going well. And now with things being great, he's kind of the media darling and, and fans love him. They kind of love that, that aw shucks thing about him. <laughs> well, I understand where uh, certain media members might um, dislike that. Well, you were just describing how he doesn't necessarily, it isn't part of his repertoire to talk, talk to guys after the game and provide, you know, heavy insight because certain, certain beat reporters do rely heavily on those player quotes for, for their post game articles and stuff like that. But I, 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 I love it. I mean, listen, the guy just, he, he wants to play hockey and he wants to score goals. And both of those things are, are, are his job and he does them really well. So I think, uh, that, that's, that for me, that's all that really matters. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think anyone who uh, is, I don't want to say an intelligent journalist, because that kind of belittles the people who are, who treat Phil poorly, but journalists who understand that there are other ways to to get that story and to, um, you know, really tell the tale of Phil Kessel, it, it can be done. You don't need Phil to, to come in and, and tell you about his life and, and, you know, give you all these intimate little details. It's just not the way he is, as mm-hmm. you said, He's a great hockey player, um, and I, I think there's an interesting story there to be told, especially with his history in terms of the you know the cancer that he had and kind of just you know rocky times in Toronto. But yeah, I, I don't think any journalist should ever kind of penalize any player for not being enthusiastic about talking. I, I covered the Pittsburgh baseball team for a while, and they had a guy that was kind of a similar situation. You know, a talented guy, but really didn't like talking to the media and, and some you know, reporters took that personal and, and mm. were offended by it. But again, the, between, you know, advanced metrics and just teammates and coaches and, you know, just little observations, there are plenty of ways to, to get that information without the, the player saying, okay, I'll tell you everything you want to know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's all sorts of different personalities. There's other, other guys to go to if, uh, if, if one player isn't really given the, giving you the quotes. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if I should say, use the word surprised because I, I guess we should have seen it coming, but I don't know. Were you surprised by, by Kessel's uh, omission from the team USA world cup roster? It's a head scratcher. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. There's so much in hockey that is kind of, strange especially decisions made by gms and people of you know in positions of power that i i guess i can't really be surprised by anything anymore there's mm-hmm. just yep. there there are different schools of thought i think hockey leadership um and you still see this with the, again the pushback uh to analytics from some teams and the embracing of it on others hockey culture or leadership is kind of at a, a pivot point right now where you know a lot of guys who still are, are of some sort of old school thinking for, for lack of a better term and um, you know, believe that it's, it's all about grit and hustle and right. toughness and, you know, big mean guys doing this. And then there are other guys who, who look and say, okay, here are our player strengths. Here are his weaknesses. How do we put together the, you know, the lineup that best kind of complements itself or that where every piece, you know, helps make the, the whole that much better. So you know the U.S. U.S. team loading up on on kind of tough guys uh, and, and omitting someone like Kessel. It's a head scratcher, but again, I, I guess it, there's a certain school of thought that says that's the way you do it. 
Yeah, but it, it's like there's something to be said for learning from past history, and I guess if you're really you know taking this exercise seriously and trying to feel the best team that can that can win the World Cup, um, you'd look back to what happened in Sochi, where uh, when they went up against Team Canada, just they, their attempts to even score a goal were so feeble that you you'd think that having as many guys as Phil Kessel would be uh, would be good for your efforts to potentially scoring with some of the other best teams in this tournament, but I guess. Uh, they're 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 attacking it from a different angle, as you said. Yeah, no, hey, I agree with you. Again, a guy with Phil's shot, um, you would think there would be a, a use for that somewhere in the mix, but I, I don't know. From what I read, the you know comments from Dean Lombardi, they they building a roster they think can beat Team Canada. So yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently, they're seeing something that you know leads them to believe that Team Canada is vulnerable in the um, the tough guy category. So. I don't know. Like I said, it's it's a strange strange situation, but it seems that it happens all too often these days in terms of uh, NHL GM and, and you know, related kind of leadership decisions. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, hey, so you were you were just to pivot on the on the topic of talking to players. Uh, you do you do a great job, and I'm not sucking up to you right now just because you came on the PDO cast, but I think you do a, a really commendable job of integrating uh, different forms of analysis and and using numbers to help uh, guide your stories and and provide further insight rather than just uh, regurgitating quotes and and all that jazz like some other guys do. So I think I've I've always wondered just in terms of how. Uh, players deal with this stuff with quote-unquote analytics because i've always had this running theory that plenty of them aren't necessarily as sort of meatheady and and jockish as as they may put on for their appearance just in terms of their grasp of these concepts and their appreciation for the importance of stuff like puck possession because it is sort of an intuitive thing that's ingrained in in hockey from an early age but i think it's whether it's the poor terminology and lingo and and the names that we have for some of these stats or or just maybe this pervasive idea where uh uh, it's kind of considered nerdy and and not necessarily very cool to be talking about it. So they just you know are 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 avoiding kind of being uh, mocked and and having their reps tarnished around the the locker room. Like I don't know. Like do you do you gather from discussing with certain players that they do have an appreciation for this stuff, or is it really where it's like they actually believe the whole uh, you just have to play the game the right way sort of mentality? Well, I've I've tried it. Well, first of all, I should say thank you for for uh, complimenting the coverage. It's always appreciated. I think you can't suck up to me there because you still have more followers on Twitter <laughs> and a bigger reach. I you know I, I haven't been on the, any of the Canadian broadcast stuff yet, so you're 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 still the the man in charge here. Um, thank you. But anyway, thank you. Uh, yeah, in terms of talking analytics with players, uh, I've tried to do it a couple times with different guys. It's they they know about it, and I think they respect some of the concepts, but they definitely don't want to, um, you know, go full nerd in, in public view. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think they there's still a skepticism for what it all really means. You know, I found guys like Nick Benino. Uh, he he's very good, or I should relative to teammates. Right. Nick is very good at um, you know being willing to discuss it, and you know, he uh, he impresses me because there were points in the season where. I would ask him about a particular performance and he would bring up scoring chances that night that, you know, they were a, a plus six in, in scoring chances as a line. Mm-hmm. So he, and I asked him just flat out one time, I said, where do you get some of these numbers from? Are you going on websites? And you know, the, the team tracks it internally, of course. So they're kind of getting their own uh, you know, proprietary reads on things, but clearly Benino gives some thought to, to things like scoring chance and shot differentials and things like that. 
um, yeah, where you lose them is, is if you do start using, you know, the, the Corsi and Fenwick and, and anything that really suggests that you're, you're clearly not a hockey guy. You're, you're one of those nerd types that yes. just, you, know, yeah. you wouldn't want to be one of those guys. Exactly. Yeah. They, uh, they, they get very wary if they, they think that you're not, uh, again, a quote unquote hockey guy, you're, you're some sort of outsider. Mm. So yeah, the, the trick or the way I found to, to approach the subject without scaring them off is, like I said, you talk about the idea of puck possession or zone time or, um, you know, just getting pucks in the net as opposed to having things blocked. And, you know, they're, they, they understand what the number, what the numbers and the metrics represent. They just, yeah, they don't want to be quantified because I, I think the scariest thing or one of the scariest things that you can do uh, to a player is to try to simplify what they do into a, a series of numbers. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I understand that the numbers simply represent events on the ice, but you know, the, the players always have to tell themselves that there's more to it. And, and there is, I mean, like any sport, course, hockey yeah. is incredibly complicated and it's not as simple as saying, yeah, that's a shot attempt. So, you know, good job, you bad job, other team. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the balance that you walk. You don't come right up and say, Hey, you know, you're, you were a 67% Corsi four player tonight. You know, great job. But you can say, you know, the puck was in the other team's end a lot when you were out on the ice. You know, what do you attribute that to? Yeah. You, once you start uh, adjusting for zones and, and rating uh, per 60 stats, they'll, uh, you'll probably lose them. Yeah, I mean, even though I mean, again, even something like that is funny. The the rate stats, uh, I, I think you could get to that. I haven't brought it up too much, um, but you know, zone adjustment. Guys, guys are aware when they start in the defensive zone a lot more than others are in the offensive zone. I, I've talked to Matt Cullen and, and Tom Kuhnhackle and Eric Fair about that a lot because I mean, they they get almost all of the Penguins' defensive zone starts. It's, it's yep. kind of their thing. So um, you know, you you can talk to those guys about hey. <clears throat> what do you feel you're trying to accomplish as opposed to, uh, again, a line like, uh, you know, Malkin's, which gets really heavy offensive zone start. Yeah. And, and I mean, all of this stuff is, as I, as I said, intuitive, right? Like, it's like you want to have the puck more than the other team and, and certain guys are used in different ways based on their role and, and how their coach likes to, likes to spread out the wealth and, and all of this stuff. So it's not like you're, uh, you know, redefining the game or, or, or breaking any new ground. It just, you got to find a way to, uh, spin it in a way that they're going to feel comfortable talking about it so that it does, you know, so that it's not perceived as they are being nerdy and very uncool. Yeah, you have to you have to speak their language. Yes. You can't expect them to speak yours. That's that's really what it does boil down to. Mm. So uh, I wanted to talk to you about Mike Sullivan because speaking of uh, various various different languages, I think that I've, what I really enjoyed is. Uh, aside from obviously all the winning that they've done since he's taken over is just some of the quotes I've seen from him where it seems like he really is uh, a pretty kind of thoughtful, innovative guy who is taking all of this stuff into account and isn't, while he might not necessarily be, you know, fully numbers, numbers heavy and just using that solely to, to guide his opinions, he is at least kind of keeping keeping the door open to it and 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 considering it which i think is a a big step up from some of the other coaches we see around the league yeah he i think he absolutely looks at the numbers and, and keeps them in mind uh you know he's not a guy who uh, again go back to the point we we're discussing earlier you know it's all about the grit and you know the intangibles he he is absolutely intrigued in being able to measure and and again compare uh, to some extent what players are doing he's never come out and said you know xyz number is why i play this guy or why i'm using this line the most uh, he always keeps it a very 
um, conceptual level, which is really, it's helped me in terms of my coverage. Because when I first started on the beat, which was the middle of the season, actually, three days before Mike Sullivan uh, took over, um, you know, I, I didn't know how to talk to the, the players about the, the advanced metrics. I was very interested in them, but uh, I had dealt with baseball. And in baseball, there's a lot more um, knowledge and familiarity with some of the advanced numbers there. But right. again, in hockey, it's verboten. You don't go there. So hearing the way Mike talks about, uh, again, the concepts that you can then kind of apply to these advanced metrics, it helped me. Um, he is an incredibly uh, smart coach in, in terms of you know, studying psychology and, and that side of things, because there certainly is an element of that. It's, mm-hmm. you know, they're not just robots. You don't just send them out there and tell them to, you know, execute your commands. Right. But he also, uh, you know, very sharp about, um, you know, how to manage the bench and, and you know, being open to, different pairings you know, this whole lineup there the the way the penguins were constructed in terms of really investing in this speed type of game and this pace game and being willing to sacrifice uh size to some extent even though again there's a lot of people in the league who believe you need to have a bunch of six foot three defensemen and you know hardy forwards and, and guys that can take a hit for the playoffs yep. and he's insisted all along as has the, the general manager that if we simply pe- play fast enough the other team can't catch us they they aren't going to be able to get those big hits and trap us and you know our own and things like that so yeah mike it's uh it's been you know i don't have a whole lot to compare to because he's the only coach i've really ever covered but it's it's very refreshing to see how uh, thoughtful he can be about the different way you can play hockey well, I think it serves as a good reminder just in general that uh, sometimes you need to um, not just lump everyone that works in a, uh, under one staff together because I remember being pretty skeptical when they hired him just because the, the lasting image I had in my mind was when he was serving as an assistant under John Tortorella here in Vancouver. And you just, when, you know, when you have a, a head coach and his assistant coaches, it just seems like you sort of lump all those guys into one. And just if the head coach believes a certain thing and, and acts a certain way, you just assume automatically that the assistant coaches kind of uh, follow the same thought process and psychology, but he's been just dramatically different and, and pleasantly surprising, I think. Yeah, it's when he was first hired, um, there was probably a solid two-week to three-week span where there were just constant questions about his relationship with Tortorella and how much he learned from Tortorella. And, you know, essentially, was he a Tortorella disciple? And, um, you know, while he always kind of acknowledged that, yes, they were together for a long time and, and they have a friendship, he at first was gradually, but then eventually made it pretty clear they're different coaches. Um, you know, he, they, they went about things differently. It sounded like Mike always kind of served as the um, kind of stoic, almost cold and calculated uh, complement to, to Tortorella and the way Tortorella does things, which is, of course, not stoic at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think they got lumped together, but Mike never really, uh, he, he never was trying to be a Tortorella. He, he has no interest in, in going about things that way. You know, he respects the, the way uh, Tortorella does his business, but, uh, you know, Coach Sullivan, it's, it's, he has a very, very different personality. And, um, yeah, that's become incredibly clear over the past 
four months. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. You never really want to go full Tortorella. Um, I, I think I think that you know it is interesting because Sullivan's obviously not necessarily uh, like a young up and coming guy that's just cutting his teeth at the NHL level now in the sense that he's been around the block for a while now. But it, it, it does feed into this idea that I've been mulling over about how it'd be cool if we saw more teams start routinely going to the AHL well and 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 getting these guys who have familiar familiarity with their younger players and keeping it in house as opposed to uh how we see all this sort of all these retreads that are being passed around the league who we know aren't really good or who who we know the game has passed them by so i think i don't know i i think the success of a guy like sullivan after he came up from the ahl and worked with a lot of these guys is something uh smart teams around the league are going to look at and try to implement uh in, in their own system yeah, I mean, you see what uh, you know, Cooper is done with Tampa Bay, kind of a similar approach. And, and John Hines in uh, New Jersey mm-hmm. seems to you know, be up, off to a good start relative to the talent they had this year. Yep. Uh, I think because you're seeing the talent in the league trend, I don't want to say trend younger because I, I suppose it's not really true. Even the Penguins, a lot of these quote-unquote young guys they have are they're, they're college players. They're yep. 22, 23 years old. So, right. But yeah, you, you probably it would be wise to have um, a coach who is capable of connecting with all the players, your, your young call-ups, your stars and and everyone between you don't want a coach that is just paying lip service to the stars or who secretly has an affinity for the Dan Girardi's and Mark Stahl's of the world. And Mm, you, you you need a coach who is truly able to um, connect and, and communicate with, you know, your, your best to your, uh, again, I don't want to say worst, but you know the the guy whose ego is most fragile. Yeah. Um, it's it's just it's such a team game now. I, I think you're you're seeing that you know they're they're even in the the cup final right now. It's it's clear that Penguins depth and part of that is you know the the good fortune they've had with just cap space and and roster moves. But you know, any good team is going to try to be as deep as possible right now, and you want a coach that is able to connect with all of that depth, not just the top line or, you know, the top bottom six forwards or the top six forwards. It's just, you, you need to have someone who kind of is able to, to spin all those plates at once. Yeah, for sure. I, I saw somewhere, I think uh, someone tweeted out that the Penguins have won 33 of their past 45 games or something like that, which is remarkable. And, and, and it's, it's such a 180 from what they look like early in the year. So I guess what what, what intrigues me is sort of uh, this delineation or, or how we're going to uh, give credit, how much of it goes to Jim Rutherford for seeing the writing on the wall and, and pulling the trigger on these moves and, and making some of these trades and calling these guys up and how much of it is really uh, Mike Sullivan coming in and being like, we need more of these AHL guys to come up and play bigger roles. Like, like, is it just sort of a, a team effort and everyone really deserves a fair amount of the credit or, or do you think it goes uh, more one way than the other? That, that is one of the, the more discussed topics, I'd say, among the, the hockey writers in Pittsburgh is, yeah, at, at the end of the season, how will... You know, what will the end of the season story say? What will the narrative be? Was this Jim Rutherford's, you know, greatest achievement? Was this Mike Sullivan's? Is this, you know, how much of this is on Crosby and Latang and the production they had in the second half? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's mostly serendipity. Uh, you know, everyone that you just mentioned did some really good things. You know, Jim Rutherford made some pretty bad moves in, in the past. You know, last season, and, and you know, certainly had some egg on his face and was not particularly, uh, you know, well liked in, in Pittsburgh. But, uh, you know, getting the Trevor Daly trade was an eye-opener, to say the least. Yes. 
I, I'm still, I think everyone's still a little perplexed as to how that happened or why that happened. Apparently Chicago just really wanted to clear some cap space um, and didn't, and didn't see a need for Trevor Daly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that trade. And then uh, again, the, the haggle and Perron thing seemed to work out for both teams. And Justin Schultz was just a really you know, smart move in terms of giving away very little and getting a guy who has proven to be pretty, uh, you know, useful at least as a, a bottom pair defenseman. And, and the call-ups, uh, there's always been some question. I, I still don't know if there's been a clear answer why some of the call-ups weren't with the team um, up to that point. You know, whether Mike Johnston simply didn't trust these guys as much as Sullivan did, or if it was the GM that was kind of interfering or intervening. Um, but I think, like I said, it's it's mostly serendipity. It, there, the the injury. If the injuries don't happen to Mark Andre Fleury, then you never. You don't really see Matt Murray. Um, if Bo Bennett doesn't hurt his shoulder in Mike Sullivan's debut, Connor Sheary doesn't get the call up that next day. Brian Rust, uh, you know Scott Wilson. There, they just again almost all the baby pens were first called up because one of the forwards uh, was injured for some stretch of time, and these call ups ended up just being so productive that it became pretty tough for the Penguins to say, "Well, we, we got to send you back. We you know, don't want you anymore." Right. So. They've they found a way to make it work. They got rid of Sergei Plotnikov and Perron and Pascal Dupuis. You know, there's another example of a kind of just strange twist and you know uh, turn of events. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's mostly just going to I think be remembered as wow, everything fell into place. Yeah, everything worked out. Yeah, well, okay, so. They're obviously up to nothing now on, on the Sharks. And while, you know, people are, can generally sometimes overreact on the internet and just, and just call a series this prematurely, I think that, uh, there's a lot left to go. And, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see how the next couple of games will unfold. And, and one of the things that I'll be looking for is, is how the Sharks decide or how Pete DeBoer himself decides to, uh, free up Thornton and Pavelski because, uh, while it looks like, Sullivan sort of spread out the wealth in terms of defending those guys and didn't necessarily hard match while he had the opportunity to at home. He definitely fed them a, a healthy dose of Latang and Dumoulin and, and, uh, as, as good of a job as some of these other guys have done stepping up and, and, and holding the fort. I think that that, that blue line looks very suspect beyond that top pairing. And if, if Deborah can, can free up Thornton and Pavelski for some easier opportunities at home, it could all of a sudden, um, really kind of change the, the complexion of the series. Yeah, certainly. I, you know, the, the, the ability to have last change, it's always an interesting thing over the course of a series because you do see the little chess matches go on. Um, so that will be one of the big questions here in the next couple of days for a uh, DeBoer in particular is, yeah, how, how, how do you get your top line, uh, you know, to, to dominate matchups? I, I'm sure what Mike Sullivan will say to the degree that so Sullivan doesn't really like discussing particular matchups. Of course, he always says that we trust any you know forward line against any of their lines and we trust our D pairs and blah, blah, blah. It's always about trusting everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I, I think he's going to keep the Dumoulin Tang out there against the, you know, the, the Pavelski and Thornton combo, just because as you said, that's, that's what you got to do. It's yeah. a lockdown pair, but he'll also, I would suspect just lean heavily on either um, Crosby's line or Cullen's line. And, and really make it that that you know, the, the Thornton Pavelski combo has to beat five players instead of just two. It's the the big one of the big talking points for for Mike Sullivan, and this has been the case since he took over. Uh, you know, is always having players on the right side of the puck. He talks about it constantly, and 
you know, this 200 foot game, make the opponent go through all five of your guys as opposed to three or two. It's just the, the idea that our defensemen are not solely responsible for stopping another team's forward. Right. If, if we just dump the puck deep and you know, stay on the right side of it, then you're, 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 you're better off, I guess is kind of the, the simplest way to put it. So, um, yeah, I, I think more so than looking for creative matchups, it's just really going to be that much more important for the Penguins when they don't have as much flexibility in their, their change options to, uh, you know, again, for lack of a better term, play the right way. That's that's what yeah. Sullivan says all the time. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the the Cullen line and the Crosby line in terms of who's going to match up against Thornton because I, I did, I read, I think it was your, your game pre-game two notes where you were mentioning that Bonino's line actually saw most of the uh, most of the, uh, the, the Thornton duty in game one. And I really liked Sullivan's thought process and describing why that was in the sense that he was saying that you know it, it's generally convention that you put your checking guys your your sort of depth players against the other team's best and just try to limit the damage that they're gonna inflict upon you but Sullivan sort of spun it back the other way and 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 mentioned that another way to defend is by making uh, the other team's top players actually play in their own zone a little bit and kind of giving them some of their own medicine so I thought that was a, a pretty cool and underutilized approach that we see. Yeah, it's, it's called the Eric Carlson, uh, you know, philosophy or the Eric Carlson uh, ethos. Because I think, of course, uh, maybe any player out there, Carlson most splits the is he playing offense or is he playing defense, uh, you know, attitude out there. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it was an interesting thought. I didn't necessarily agree with it. And I think in game two, that became clear. I haven't, I haven't looked at the exact head to head matchups on, uh, on War on Ice because. It was 1.30 when I left the arena last night. <laughs> yeah. But um, I I know the Benino line didn't do very well from a possession standpoint. So if they tried to go back to that, and I know that the, the Benino line was out there for at least some portion of time against the Thornton-Pavelski um, line, then it, it didn't work out in the Penguins' favor in Game 2. And they still won. But uh, I, I I think there's a reason that Crosby's line has, has handled the toughest defensive matchups all most of the season anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, the call on line has always kind of been there to, uh, you know, take away some of those minutes and, and, and just be defensively responsible. Um, so as much as I think Sullivan is, is willing to experiment and occasionally try to branch out what he does with the Benino line, that combo or that trio is still probably best served just abusing whatever the other team's, you know, third line or second line is. And you're you're seeing it in the series. I think the the big separator right now is, um, you know, the Tierney line for San Jose is just getting owned by whoever they're up against. They just uh, it it has not gone well for for Chris Tierney and uh, his wingers because mm-hmm. he's either been out there against Benino or he's out there against Crosby in Game One. It, it's just you're you're seeing the forward depth and and every playoff opponent for the Penguins so far has talked about this. That it is almost impossible to 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 have the depth to match what the Penguins are doing in terms of their, their three line thing to go back to the you know initial point you brought about Phil Kessel, as long as he's on his own line and especially again with a center like Benino, who is more than happy to let Phil make all the plays, then you're, you're essentially stuck with, you know, how, how many times can you get your lockdown defensive pair out there? How many times can you use your more reliable, um, you know, forward lines? So it's that the, the onus is still on on DeBoer and the Sharks to to really figure out how to win the uh, the matchup game, just because it seems, at least from what we've seen through two games, 
they have fewer options. You're, I guess you're eventually just going to have to play the Thornton line like 30 minutes a game. I don't know. Yeah, that, that would definitely be uh, one, one potential remedy for them. Well, listen, it sounds incredibly kind of oversimplistic to put it this way, but it really is the case in these playoff series where uh, it's going to be who can sort of limit the exposure to their bottom end players the best and, and who can take advantage of the other team's uh, weak links. And with this Penguins team, it is just remarkably difficult to match up with them and defend them because eventually Pete DeBoer is going to have to play that that Roman Polak Brennan Dillon pairing against uh, one line they can score goals very easily and and all of a sudden like we saw that uh, in game two where Polak makes that brutal turnover in his own zone and then it's flopping around on the ice like a fish and, and Kessel winds up scoring the first goal of the game and and uh, there's not much the Sharks can do about that because no team necessarily has uh, 18 guys they can just roll without any worry but the Penguins have many fewer of those kind of glaring holes than uh, than than other teams generally do. Yeah, their their weekend seems to be uh, you know less weak than than most. And it, again, it's not not an impossible puzzle to solve. I think the Benino line and the Malkin line, uh, if you can get them stuck in their defensive zone, then then there's some vul- vulnerabilities there because I don't think either of those forward lines are particularly strong when they have to block shots and do things like that. So you know, the the trick is getting a really extended possession, and then maybe you. You know, once you have the puck pinned deep in their end, you you make some you know changes and you get your best offensive guys out there. But the the reason the Penguins tried so hard to go out and get these puck moving defensemen is so that of course they don't get pinned deep. They are able to go back and retrieve pucks and um, you know move it out of their zone before any team can really set up the forecheck or you know establish it in the cycle game. So uh, I think there there is a, a recipe. Um, you know. Washington probably came as close as anyone to executing that well. Or, I mean, Tampa did the alternate strategy, which is just, again, transition game and, and really kill mm-hmm. you with kind of the counterpunch stuff. Yep. I don't know if San Jose has the roster to do that. I think San Jose is more likely to kind of do what uh, Washington did. So so there, there there is a bit of a blueprint. But, uh, again, you look at the results and uh, you know, neither team, despite having some success, Washington or Tampa Bay was able to get it done for a whole series. Well, and I don't want to make it seem like uh, this Penguins blue line is necessarily impenetrable. Like you look past that Latang and Dumoulin pairing and, and while Cole, Cole and Schultz have actually been pretty, pretty, pretty good in this series so far, like uh, I know the Lovejoy Mata pairing hasn't necessarily worked out that great. And, and of course we can't forget the, the, the like explain to me the rationale behind uh, the Lovejoy Cole pairing was it just like purely out of necessity early in the postseason because that was quite possibly one of the worst defensive pairings I think I've ever watched yeah I have no idea um I asked about that a couple times it, it still to this day doesn't make sense to me I think it was Mike Sullivan overthinking things a little bit they his his explanation was they wanted defensive defensemen that he actually used that term and which I don't think he'd use it at all during a regular season and they wanted penalty killers mm. so the penalty killer um logic, you know, I guess kind of made sense because, uh, you know, they were afraid of, of the Caps power play and wanted to make sure they had as many penalty killers as, as possible. So again, I don't think it's a reason to, to use those two as a pair and five on five play, but it, it was just strange. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I, it seemed like a deviation from everything the Penguins did up to that point to you know become the team that they, they are now. So, uh, I, I certainly, for one, was glad to see it go because, again, it was just like... 
It was brutal. It just, it just yeah. didn't make sense. It made bad hockey that, you know, it was suddenly two defensemen that just wanted to block shots and dump the puck out of their own end and, you know, kind of stifled everything else the, the Penguins tried to do when those two were out there. So they, they have their purpose, each of them. Uh, you know, they, they work as complementary pieces when they have a, a good puck mover like a Justin Schultz or, um, you know, Dumoulin. Lovejoy's been with everyone at this point. You know, now he's with Olimata. But, uh, yeah, they, they have their purpose. You just you just can't put them together. That's, that, that is not the way to do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how these next couple of games in San Jose go. I think that uh, you were mentioning that blueprint that like, the Capitals laid out. And, and we discussed how DeBoer is going to kind of free up that Thornton-Pavelski combo. And, and I think another interesting component of this is that the Sharks have only had three power play opportunities through, the fir- through these first two games. And um, <laughs> it's quite possible that we see in one of these home games that they get a couple more and, and convert on those. And all of a sudden, they're right back in the series. So I, I, I would uh caution people from you know just just handing the stanley cup over to the penguins now through two games because i think there's still uh plenty of really good hockey to be played yeah absolutely i you know it is it, it's a i guess you can look at it two different ways on the one hand you know the the numbers say that i think well, however many times it's happened uh, 40 some now maybe it's up to 50 times that a team has gone ahead 2-0 in the stanley cup final um they they've won the series ninety percent of the time or eighty eight is somewhere around there. So again, the odd, the odds of a Sharks comeback aren't great right now. But yeah, there's uh, you know, it, not impossible. Nothing is inconceivable. Um, the Sharks power play is still scary as hell. Uh, so the the Penguins are wise to stay out of the box and you know not get into especially if the Sharks start getting um, more. I guess irritating or agitating, whatever word you want to use. Mm-hmm. They they probably haven't taken enough advantage of of trying to be um, just frustrating for the, the Penguins. You know, I, I think part of it is there's not a lot of history between the two teams, so maybe they they just don't have the little you know the little jabs and and little you know whatever it is things that you say to guys to set them off. Certainly, uh, the Caps and and the Rangers even I think were a little more attuned to that. So if the if the Sharks think they can get you know a Chris Letang or a Sidney Crosby or an Evgeny Malkin off their game that way a little bit, uh, maybe worth a try. I don't know, but um, yeah, I think it's ultimately it's going to be about the Sharks finding a way to establish long possessions in the offensive end and um, you know getting again Thornton, Pravelski, Logan Couture, whoever out there where they're they're not expending all their energy, you know, retrieving pucks and, and starting the breakout again. Instead, they're they're committing that energy and, and that effort to, you know, offensive zone, um, you know, possession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how they do that. Um, Bill, thanks for taking the time to come to, come on the PDOcast and chat, man. I think uh, it was a lot of fun, and and I've I've looked look forward to having you on the show uh, for a while now. So it was good to finally have this chat. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, you know, I'm happy to to come on anytime you want to talk. Absolutely, man. We'll talk soon. Uh, where can people? Before you go, where can people find you on on Twitter and read your work? We we need to uh, make sure they do that. Right, I, yeah, my bosses would not be happy with me if I didn't plug <laughs> it. Um, my my Twitter handle account, whatever we call it these days, is a uh, b west underscore trib. That's b for Bill West, like the direction mm-hmm. underscore r i b. So check out uh, all my all my musings there. I guess. Yep, I definitely recommend it, and uh, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll we'll chat soon, maybe later on in the series when uh when it's it, it's it's two two, and all of a sudden we have uh we spend forty minutes talking about how the Penguins are going to make adjustments to come back into it. 
Yeah, we, we suddenly question why they're using Justin Schultz so much when he's you know being exposed for not really doing much in his own defensive end. So absolutely. All right, man. Talk soon. All right, thanks, Dimitri. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.